You're listening to the Dirt Society Podcast. You can find us on SoundCloud, Facebook, Twitter, or at home on www.thedirtsociety.com. If you like what we're doing, consider donating just a few bucks a month by following any contribute or donate link on our pages. If you love what we're doing, contact us directly and we'll tell you about how you or your business can sponsor an episode or a whole series. If you can't do either right now, you are still very, very welcome to join us. This, after all, is the podcast for anyone who eats. My name is Jennifer Garvin. Today, January 16th, is my anniversary. My two-year anniversary of the day that I quit my desk job to launch a nonprofit. The organization that I founded and now direct is called the Dirt Society. We have a simple mission. We want to increase food security by building free learning tools for folks who want to know more about rural and urban farming, gardening, biology and ecology, food prep, business, etc. We can build these tools, publish them, and monitor their efficacy for an amazingly low cost. More importantly, once we've developed these resources, it costs us almost nothing to let the whole world use them as often as they'd like for as long as they'd like. Now, how is that possible? It's possible because my nonprofit and the tools that we make are almost entirely online. And internet use is cheap and getting cheaper every day. Why did I quit a stable job to do all of this? And why should we even bother learning how to change our eating habits at this point? Why should you, a working class American with bills to pay and never enough disposable income or disposable time, endeavor to pay more and take longer just to eat? That last question is one I wish more people would ask, and I wish more for-profit companies marketing green solutions would be forced to address it realistically. Nobody should expect you to jump on the sustainable bandwagon, no questions asked. They should treat the issue like a serious lifestyle change. They should treat it like an investment. Because living healthily and living green can seem like luxuries to many of us, especially at the onset. We'd like to, but there are lots of things that we'd like to do travel to the Mediterranean, or go back to school, buy a motorcycle. And this paycheck, this month, this year, it's perhaps just not in the cards to do all the things that we want. So why add the pressure of eating in an ecologically responsible way, or of eating healthy foods, especially since the impacts of those decisions are so far away and somewhat hard to predict? Someone listening is probably thinking what I would be thinking. Why change? only to save the planet and life as we know it, no big deal. If that's you, hang tight. You get the gist. You're already committed, and that's great. But if the past two years have taught me anything, it's that saying to save Earth and humanity is maybe not as strong an argument as it might seem. I'm going to tell you why I do it, about how I answer all of these why questions for myself. I hope that's okay. It'll take a few minutes, but it goes a long way because... I believe if the impetus is personal and your rationale is pragmatic, then the issue of making a lifestyle change becomes hardly an issue at all. It just makes good sense to do it. My family hails from Appalachia, very rural Appalachia in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. This is one of those perfectly American places in that it is both a tourist destination and home to some of the country's poorest and most forgotten people. To folks unfamiliar with our homes and our ways, perhaps the mountains seem like an uninhabited place, like a wilderness. And had you seen it at the time, maybe you would have thought the same. 
Depending on which turn that you took off of Rutledge Pike, you might have seen a smattering of dilapidated houses, some gardens, and livestock under lean-tos, or you might have seen nothing but winding gravel trails in very dense Appalachian woodlands. You would not have seen a supermarket. You would not have seen a gas station. You would not have even seen produce stalls on the side of the road. But there were families. Some had official addresses, some paid taxes, some had access to well water, but some didn't. As far as I know, there are still plenty of families doing just fine out there, some even living off the grid, though they would never call it that. Still, in this isolated crucible of Appalachian American homesteads, despite being so remote and so poor, people were healthy and they lived long. I did most of my growing up the way that I see it, with my grandparents on their homestead. They lived off of Papaw's Railroad and Veterans Pay with enough land underfoot for timber and some livestock and a very large family garden. And that's how the family got by, foraging, hunting, trading, and harvesting whenever we needed to. The joke is that we never crossed a river, which wasn't strictly the truth, but it's close, because everything that we needed, everything that we wanted, we had. It grew and flourished right there nearby. Perhaps, without meaning to, we were living as locally, organically, sustainably, and as fair trade as you could possibly live, and it was a beautiful and healthy life, until, and that's a powerful word, until, it means that everything is about to change. Until food became cheap. A couple of grocers and a Hardee's opened up nearby. You had to come down the ridgeline to get to it, but it was there, and oh, what simplicity, and oh, how very affordable. My grandparents' generation lived long, and my papa had a strong, able cattleman's body up to the last years of his life, but their nine children, my aunts and uncles, who grew up poor, jumped at the opportunity to eat these new, flashy, affordable foods. And what happened? Diabetes, heart disease, cancer, tooth decay, morbid obesity. All nine of them suffer from almost each of those health conditions, or they've died. Now, I have enormous respect for my extended family, and I don't intend to hurt anyone's pride by telling this story to strangers, but it's simply the truth, the truth as I saw it. In came the IGA and the food lion, out went family gardens. In came pokes full of cheap groceries, out went the hardy and strong bodies of the people that I loved. Did they save money? A little, at first. Did they save time? A little, at first. But by now, we've all seen enough of the University of Tennessee's medical center to be able to draw the whole floor plan between us, I suppose. And our trips to radiology and cardiology labs, those are not cheap ways to while away the time. Eventually, we paid for it. We paid for cutting costs, and we paid for cutting corners. My family, a family of agrarians, a family of land lovers and bird watchers and mountain climbers, a family that swam upriver and built their own houses by hand, is dying. And they're dying in a painful way. Why spend money and time on eating more responsibly, was the question. Now, I'm talking to folks who probably already know that fresh produce is good, going green is good, organic is swell, local is ideal, but there's a big difference between theory and praxis. And to make the leap from one to the other, you maybe need a better reason than just, it's the right thing to do. For me, it was family. And it was something else, too. 
something more objective. In relation to food production and consumption, the bad stuff is interrelated. Low nutrient value, high ecological cost, gross economic dependency, they feed into each other. The inverse being eating healthily, protecting natural resources, and practicing a greater share of economic control, they work together also. To eat well can be a selfish thing. Treating yourself to something homegrown, nurtured, carefully harvested and prepared, nutritious and scrumptious. But eating well can also be a radical act. An act that flies in the face of a corrupt food system, asserts your financial independence, and takes money from the pocket of a very grimy, very terrifying oil industry. When you decide what's for supper, like it or not, you are deciding between the two. What's good for both my planet and me? Or what's bad for both my planet and me? I don't expect you just to believe that. I want us to dig into it and really understand it. And then I want to discuss the tools that help you make that decision. A decision made many times every day. Because that's going to be the trick. Knowing we have power is critical. Knowing how to wield it is just as important. But making it easy and fun and impossible to forget is ultimately What's going to make the difference when 6 p.m. rolls around and we're hangry? Have you heard this word, hangry? That's so hungry that you're angry, and it might as well be my nickname. I'm a small person, and like a lot of small people, if I go three hours without a sandwich, I can turn into a monster. I've even woken up in the middle of the night, genuinely, so hungry that I'm angry. So if I can navigate the rough waters of 6 p.m. and hangry, even though I swore to eat more ethically, I am sure that you can too. It's just a matter of knowing how. And I'll tell you, but first, let's talk about correlation. Uh-oh, statistics? No, no, no. I've made this a cakewalk. All you need to do is remember three powerful words, the three Ps. Processing, packaging, and petrol. Those are the three things to keep in mind when you're walking grocery store aisles or looking at the lunch menu. Processing, packaging, petrol. Let's break them down individually first, then we'll tie everything together. Processing. Why is it bad? In almost every case, the further away from fresh an ingredient moves, the fewer nutrients it has to offer. A just-picked strawberry is nutritious. One that was picked four days ago is less so. One that was frozen a week after harvest, even less. A strawberry turned into jam is arguably unhealthy. And one that was picked and transported, frozen, canned, and then dolloped onto a shortbread cookie wrapped in plastic and shipped to your nearest supermarket where it sits on a shelf for a few weeks, that is maybe not a strawberry at all. I don't really care what the box says. Compare a fresh mushroom to one found in a jar of pasta sauce, or a box of oranges to a box of orange juice, a recently slaughtered chicken cooked the same day to a thawed chicken nugget. Nutrient degradation occurs as non-living ingredients age and are processed. Processing, the first P that you need to consider before you buy food. The second, packaging. A great one-step indicator as to whether or not an ingredient is good for both you and the planet is packaging, and it's everywhere, not even produce is safe. The first time that I saw a potato shrink-wrapped in plastic and then sold at a higher price because of the added convenience said plastic gave to consumers, I laughed so hard I might have cried. And consider, too, those healthy snack companies that charge a premium to individually wrap our cookies so that we don't eat more than 130 calories in a snack. 
I could talk for days, actual days about the ridiculous world of food marketing, food trends, and market manipulation. But do I need to? Surely you see how well the wrappers and the boxes work. It was once a trend not so very long ago to sit in front of the TV as a family, eating a four-course meal that minutes before had been frozen scoops of congealed slop packed into a plastic tray and marketed as a wholesome, well-balanced, quick-and-easy dining experience. I think there are some real underappreciated evil geniuses in advertising, and they can convince us that liquid meals might actually taste good now, or that we can't eat just one potato chip, or that beef from cows that are bred to be solid black is somehow more delectable than beef from cows that have red fur. Packaging not only exacerbates a truly horrendous problem of byproduct waste, using non-renewable resources to make garbage, but it's also used to sell you a concept, to take advantage of any gaps in your understanding. And lastly, it's almost always wrapped around a product that has been processed and that has traveled a good long way from home. That leads us to the last P that you need to think about. Petrol, petroleum, gasoline. Imagine this, you're standing in the grocery store and you're in the outer loop. That perimeter of butcher, dairy, vegetables, fruits, and eggs. I commend you for this. The outside of the grocery store is where they keep the healthy stuff. So, you're in the outer loop, holding a box of clementine oranges, and it's January, and you think to yourself, I'm going to buy fresh oranges for my family, and I'm going to be an earth hero. Well, your heart's in the right place, but clementines come from Spain. Best case scenario, California. And that's a lot of traveling for a humble citrus. Similarly, consider spinach. Spinach is from Mexico, China, or maybe California. How about grapes? Chile, or California. And lest we forget, we were having a horrible drought this past year, am I right? Wasn't that drought in California? So, no, Earth Hero. If you want to shop for the betterment of our planet, you must consider the petroleum used in delivering that food to you. These three P's are interrelated, which maybe sounds complicated, but it actually makes your decision a much simpler one. It's a good general rule that if something has a lot of packaging, that item is probably a few, if not a hundred, steps of processing beyond fresh. And it has also probably traveled a significant distance between farm and market. And if you know that something has traveled all the way from Argentina to the U.S., then you can assume it's been bagged and crated, boxed, wrapped, swaddled in a modified atmosphere, boxed and bagged again, and it, too, has experienced more processing than is strictly necessary, including anything from wax coating to accelerated ripening to the usual laundry list of added dyes, preservatives, sweeteners, etc. So how do you shop responsibly, assuming that by now you really do want to? You just remember to consider processing, packaging, and petrol. How processed is this food? How packaged? And how far has it traveled? When and if you use this little trick, you're going to discover that there are foods you suddenly can't eat very easily. And I speak from experience here. I live a short walk from one of the region's biggest markets. It has fishmongers and butchers, and they aren't always eager to answer questions, though the good ones, the ones that you'll want to go back to, are usually delighted to. This is probably because they have pride in their work, or because they have nothing to hide, or 
maybe passion to share. But buying food this way takes effort, and it takes time. Sometime in the 20th century, grocery shopping became a process like buying gas or picking up light bulbs. And if you're a person asking an associate 10 questions at a supermarket, you are nobody's favorite person. That reflects, I think, more on the sad state of our food culture than it does on you, or even the sales associate. We've let it get this bad, and fixing it can feel awkward, whereas going through the self-checkout without a word spoken is painless. And it isn't just meat and fish, of course. You're going to have a tough time sourcing food that doesn't grow in the region, or that's out of season. Citrus, or sweet greens in the winter, or apples in the spring. But isn't that just a little bit a good thing? If you're using the three Ps, you've now locked yourself into the cycle of consumer awareness and into the habit of buying not only healthy, low-waste local foods, but also seasonal foods. The merits of the system keep going on and on, actually. Suddenly you're supporting local businesses and you're boosting your regional economy. You're also learning how to cook, not just prepare, but really and creatively cook. And you're taking more enjoyment out of the food that you eat because you've given it more thought and a few minutes more time. And my personal favorite side effect, you meet farmers, or you meet other farmers. You really can't avoid it. Once you start down this road, you're going to meet a lot of folks who care profoundly about food. People who have deep and abiding love for livestock animals, and professionals who are honest and open, who welcome you instead of hide behind locked doors and high gates. There's another negative, though, a big one. The problem is, as you might have guessed, this new conscious diet sounds expensive. It is. And that troubles a lot of us, doesn't it? I'd say, and this is based solely on personal experiences and conversations that I've had, price is actually the end of the line. This is where I lose most of you, truly. In America, we are all about getting more and spending less. But what if we've simply taken it too far? In the U.S., we spend pennies, pennies on our food. Less than seven pennies on the dollar, according to a survey by the USDA Economic Research Institute. And according to that same survey, that's almost unheard of elsewhere. Look at other countries that we generally consider to be our peers on various, sometimes arbitrary, scales of development. Germany spends almost double what we do on food. France even more than Germany, Japan more than France, the UK, Canada, Australia, they all spend more than we do. China spends five times as much on food. And the countries where we source so much of these goods, Mexico, Guatemala, Argentina, Colombia, Kenya, Morocco, between 20 and 45% of their total income spent on food. 45%. That can be rounded up to, say, half. Half of your paycheck dedicated to eating and to nothing else. That is not a good thing. But neither is spending only 6.8%. Because in a country where we eat for only 6.8% of our income, you can be sure that we are hugely and disastrously divorced from the process of growing food. We have somehow forgotten how much it costs to grow food and we are no longer considering how much the human labor and the natural resources used to make that food is even worth. The very fact that we expect to eat so much and pay so little for it is just a clear signal that we have to change. 
that the burden of taking more responsibility is ours. There's a second reason that I find the cost excuse to be a bit silly. Farmers are woefully underappreciated around here. Growing up with Mamaw and Papa, we always had a healthy herd of beef cattle. We bred them and we auctioned them, made a decent cut from them too, but we never really ate beef. We couldn't afford to. In Appalachia, or at least where I grew up, we ate eggs and chicken and deer and dove and pigeon and wild fish, but beef was a luxury. There are cattlemen who cannot afford to eat the beef that they themselves produce right here in the United States. There's a lot of talk about the death of the farming generation, about how everyone responsible for the bulk of our food system is retiring or dying, and nobody seems to want to take the reins. Here's a million-dollar idea. Maybe ensure that food growers themselves can eat. Unspoiling food may be impossible, but maybe... Maybe we can unspoil a food culture. And I believe that that's possible if going into this lifestyle change, you and I both consider upping our food budgets just a little bit. There are, of course, ways that we can save money, even as we commit to spending a little bit more. There are CSA memberships, or there's work sharing at urban and rural farms. You could grow your own food. That's a very effective and time-honored system that, for some reason, fell out of style in my parents' generation, but thank heavens seems to be creeping back into our cultural fabric. And of course there's government assistance. Today, the government pays to bolster our economy in countless ways. For better or for worse, they give to private businesses and students looking for assistance paying tuition, uh, to for-profit farmers who struggle with the market, to faltering industries that need out of debt. How is this any different? Every single one of us needs to eat well, and they can help with that too. These are just a few of the myriad ways that we can avoid paying 50% of our income on food, but we do need to spend at least 14, 15%. Can we aim for that? By utilizing the three Ps, by building relationships with growers, and by investing more of your income in quality food, you are taking better care of food laborers, too. You are creating incentive for pickers and packers to become independent or co-op farmers and you're rewarding open-door farms. You're also choosing best practice over cheapest production. We started this talk with why. I think I've given you about a dozen good reasons, and hopefully you're sold on the concept by now and agree, yes, we need to consume more responsibly. We then demystified the process by breaking it down into three Ps, processing, packaging, and petrol. Now how do we use them? And how do we measure our possible impact? What tools exist already that can enable us to buy food responsibly? This is a subject that makes me really excited because there are so many ingenious resources that we can use and that we can help develop. I'm going to start with mobile apps because the evolution of these programs truly fascinates me. I think it's likely that they'll converge and grow and specialize very rapidly, getting more effective and less expensive to develop in no time. For those of you who are unfamiliar with this term, it is nothing to be intimidated by. Mobile applications, or simply apps, are small accessory programs that you can download onto a mobile device like a phone or a tablet. Some people use 30 apps. Some people never download a single one and only use the programs that come on their phones. But suffice it to say, 
that these are quickly growing in number and in function, just like websites were a decade or two ago. Here are some of my favorite apps to help you consume ethically and easily. Good Guide. Treat this app like an encyclopedia of products and brands with performance ratings and categories like social impact and sustainability. Seasons. This app shows you what foods are in season, both locally and abroad. If you're ever confused about what foods are growing when and where, Seasons can help you get your bearings. Earth Accounting. With this app, you can scan a barcode to get a report on the company's environmental impact. You can also use the app to contact the company and leave comments or suggestions on their products and practices. Bicot. Bicot is very popular for a wide array of users. It encourages you to join a campaign that concerns the issues that you care about. And after you select what campaign or campaigns you support, such as ending animal cruelty or promoting small regional farmers, then you scan a barcode to see if the product aligns with that mission or if it works in opposition to it. Bicot will quickly tell you if the product checks out or if it doesn't. Virtual Water. This one is a simple app used mostly for raising awareness. With virtual water, you look up common foods and beverages to see how much water was probably used to make them. Now this is pretty eye-opening, and it teaches you in the time it takes to order a single lunch how to identify some of the biggest water waste culprits in the food industry. Now we can't neglect to talk about social media. Social media isn't limited to Facebook and Twitter, though those are certainly popular and can be powerful tools in and of themselves. Farmers the world over are using social media to organize and aggregate information online. They've put together lists of CSAs in your area, of farmers markets. They've built market price calculators for conventional and organic foods. They've built message boards and joined clubs and groups that collect and redistribute unwanted food. One really interesting collective that operates out of California actually puts farmers in touch with each other so that they can buy or trade food products and outsource distribution. So, for example, if a farmer can only sell 70% of the apples that they grew to customers directly, they could easily exchange the remaining 30% with another farmer who needs apples before any of the fruit rots or is wasted. Leveraging social media in ways like that not only increases potential income for farmers, but it also reduces waste and it builds community. On the subject of social media, you, as a consumer, should definitely follow farmers and chefs and food labor movements. If you want a quick and easy way to learn about the world of food, just invite yourself into the discussion. By simply scrolling through feeds, you're going to learn about what crops have failed this year, what restaurant is buying local oysters or what a new bit of legislation might mean to the dairy industry. It doesn't sound as interesting, perhaps, as following artists and celebrities, but it's arguably more useful more often. My point being, your social media activity doesn't need to be limited to just what's familiar to you. Social media gives you the power to involve yourself in almost anything that you're interested in. And if you want to participate in building a better food culture, you need only click a button. Other concerned growers and eaters and shoppers and laborers are already at the table, ready to talk and ready to share ideas. Now, most of the technology that we've discussed so far concerns you and your individual impact within our food economy. Here's the irony, though. It's similar to 
for-profit energy companies, the big ones, who actively resist investing in solar technology, then creating ads and campaigns to remind you to shut off your lights when you leave the room. Did you ever stop and think about how weird that is? If business owners wanted to be carbon neutral or carbon negative, they would be. They would have made that decision and set those wheels in motion 10 years ago. So let's think about another avenue to creating larger scale global change. Let's imagine the future of responsible eating, a future where we've moved past this individual renaissance of purchasing ethics and are now using our might to demand corporate responsibility because that's the next phase. There are two new technological leaps that I'm really interested in. Real-time user data reporting and push-button product transparency. On the surface, these are both just ways that a potential customer can mine for information about a product. Again, it seems rather small and pitiful in the face of corporate-level decision-making, but the big picture is what's important here. With both of these services, which are in development as we speak, Companies of every shape, size, and carbon load are going to lose their high fences. Businesses and their processes are going to be far more visible, and there will be very little that they can do to stop us from looking. As a millennial, I am very aware that my online activity is valuable. It's closely monitored. Each click of a link or an advertisement, every purchase, every download, is information about my consumer profile that can be observed. I've seen the effects of this firsthand, watching as the advertisements on my newsfeed change to fit my tastes, or as my junk mail folder gets flooded with pushy notifications from retailers that I've used in the past. And surely, surely they see where this is going, because in a year or two, the tables will turn. The two technologies that I'm talking about are pretty brilliant. The first is what I called real-time user data reporting. Maybe you've seen wearable apps at this point, smartwatches and cuffs that track your physical activity or show you your work calendar, etc. In the near future, you're going to be able to use the same device to track your carbon footprint. And that reporting will adjust based on the products you buy, the food you buy, the places you go, businesses you frequent, and how you travel. It will adjust based on your activity and it will also adjust based on the activity of the businesses where you spend money. This is relevant for a few reasons. So say you take a cab home from work, but then the cab company signs a contract to replace their fleet with electric cars. Your personal footprint will change to reflect that, and you'll be able to see the effects of this immediately, just like reading your portfolio as your stocks jump up and down. Moreover, this sort of tech is more directly linking the user to an activity in real time. As we've seen with the boom of online dating and before that social media games and comment boxes, people really do enjoy feeling as if they're directly involved. And they love even more to feel that they can win or advance or level up. Programs like this one will really tap into that desire. An app like this would be a game changer for for-profit industries too. In a changing consumer climate, which we are undoubtedly in today, brands and businesses are desperate for loyalty. Guardian's weekly science podcast recently interviewed an Australian climate scientist about our global response to the changing ecological environment. He had written a book, Making Predictions About the Climate, a decade ago, and he wrote another one this past year, reevaluating the data and correcting himself. 
On the show, he talked about what he got wrong and what he got right. He used to think, as many people did, that the threat of climate change all by itself would incentivize more ecologically sustainable business models. He was wrong. Now he sees something else happening. The businesses that refused to change when the threat of climate disaster was looming will scramble to change once they see a different sort of threat. The threat of shifting consumer loyalty. We are no longer just predicting climate change. We're living with it. And in very little time, consumers will be able to watch his company's carbon scores go up and down. If, around that same time, we're all just as determined to look our best and to level up, then we'll change how we buy and what we're seen owning. There will be shifts in production because there will be shifts in demand. The second bit of tech to look for is a very advanced sort of product label. Unsatisfied with companies themselves providing information on the source, safety, shelf life, contents, and nutrition of a product, some folks are developing mobile tech that will allow you to take a picture of a product label and then immediately get a breakdown of what it is, where it was made, how it ranks on scales like eco-accountability or workers' representation, etc. And it'll all be on an attractive and easy-to-read interface. It isn't a huge stretch to imagine where this might lead. Someday, we might be able to pre-scan our purchases, feed the labels or the barcodes through our list of boycott campaigns, then get alternate suggestions, warnings, or approvals, send negative feedback to some companies and positive feedback to others, and watch our carbon footprint for the day begin to shrink. All with a single program on our phone, and in less time than it takes to read an ingredients panel. This isn't science fiction. The technology exists. We're only waiting on the cost of mobile devices to drop so that everybody can use them, and on application developers to make their products cohesive, and for our new shopping habits to stick on a large scale. And it's definitely not hard to imagine this coming together quite rapidly. After all, look at how dramatically our food buying habits changed from 1920 to 1950. Or look at how our coffee consumption changed from 1980 to 2000. We are capable of enormous and rapid revolutions in purchasing habits, even if we are slow to legislate. Really, though, these are just high-tech and aesthetically pleasing, somewhat costly, maybe fun ways of doing something that you can already do yourself, looking at the three Ps, processing, packaging, and petrol. I believe that there is something very wrong about cattlemen who cannot afford to buy meat and about a long family history of health being in the span of just one generation wrecked by cheap food culture, about how the folks who spend less on food than anybody else in the world feel like they are doing the best they possibly can for the global food market. There's certainly something wrong about our country's battle with heart disease and about the rate at which we accumulate garbage and deplete natural resources. The Dirt Society, the nonprofit that I founded, is all about increasing information accessibility, about closing the knowledge gap between consumers and the people who grow and sell food, and using free learning tools to do it. Today, information is tracked and released and made public every second. Mostly it's used to sell us things, but we can use it too. We can learn so much at little to no cost. We can demand transparency. We can leverage the power of information in our fight for quality food and for nutrient parity. 
and we can use the internet to live longer and happier lives and in doing so create a more sustainable, more humane, and far more just global food market. What it all comes down to is we have to know. When we pick up that box or that bag of food, we have to know what's bad and what's good. And then once we can tell the difference, we have to be willing to invest in each other. Because that's what responsible eating means. It isn't going green, it isn't being trendy, it isn't supporting that boutique coffee roaster. It's much bigger, and yet somehow more intimate than that. It's looking at the people that you love and wanting them to be safe and healthy. It's just taking care of your family, the ones that are nearby and the ones that are very, very far away. We can always take one more step, become just a little bit better. And I know for every idea that I've discussed today, there are at least a thousand more. So I propose we get together and we talk about them sometime, perhaps over a meal that we're proud to share. This podcast was written by Jennifer Garvin, recorded and edited by Jennifer Garvin, produced by Jennifer Garvin, funded by Jennifer Garvin with music and sound by Jennifer Garvin, all recorded on Free Audacity software with Jennifer Garvin's iPhone headset and Jennifer Garvin's guitar. And yes, that's all the same person. Just one Jennifer Garvin making the Dirt Society podcast for you to enjoy and share. So if you'd like to make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit, send us an actual microphone or a real editor, or perhaps just fund one of our many forthcoming educational programs, you could be Jennifer Garvin's hero. Visit www.thedirtsociety.com for information on gifts and donations. And in the meantime, we'll get back to work. Thanks for listening to The Dirt Society, the podcast for anyone who eats.